You want me to clap? <laughs> yeah, like on the count, count of three off, here. <laughs> One, two, three. There we go. Good enough. Welcome everybody to um, what will be when we release it, the Sunday edition of True Billy Workers Party. I am uh, your impromptu host, Tom Sexton, because Terrence is uh, in in podcasting purgatory <laughs> right now, waiting to get prayed in. And joining me is uh, Miss Tanya Turner down there in Letcher County and from an undisclosed bunker somewhere. Maybe in the Bluegrass State, maybe not. Mr. Matt Jones, <laughs> Kentucky Sports Radio. Thank I'm you. in Bell County. I'm in the Bluegrass. I'm in. I'm actually in the mountains. I'm visiting my parents here in Bell County. So uh, we're all in the 606 right now. Nice. 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 Well, I guess I should say I'm in the 859. I cheated. But <laughs> Don't tell it. What's your favorite, your favorite restaurant in Bell County, Matt? You know, I, it's a shame. They don't, unlike a lot of places in the mountains, we don't really do, we don't really have local restaurants. I mean, there's like one, there's a place called Shades, but that wasn't here when I was here. When I was growing up, my favorite place was Taco Casa in the mall because oh, it, had, yeah. it had the best kind of tacos and sauce. You know, we didn't get a Taco Bell till I was a senior in high school and people thought that was the biggest thing that had ever happened to the city. So we, you know, it's not like a lot of towns. It's got their little local place. We just didn't really have that. We were all chains everywhere. You're from Millsboro, then? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, mine's Ingles. We have a we have a great drive-in in Pineville. Ingle Ingles drive-in. Oh, I know Ingles. Okay, so you, yeah, you go there a lot. Oh hell yeah, yeah. I just took my girlfriend for the first time. She was. Oh yeah. We know, that, was little, that was a little farther than we would go, but I know we're talking about. And the Floco as in Pineville has that too. Yeah, Floco's downtown. Yeah. yeah, they were closed for a while though and reopened, but and now they have a liquor license. I know all these places do. That's another crazy thing. Funny story about the Floco. I walked in there one time and my mom said, you, you won't believe this. They have a record of every winner of the Mountain Laurel Festival queen ever here. Oh, yeah. I was like, sure they do. Then one time, I, you think I'm making this up. I brought this lawyer friend of mine from Louisville. We were down there doing a case and we went in there and ate. And while he was sitting there, he was like, you know what? My mom was Mountain Laurel Festival queen. And I was like, well, let's, let's, so his name was Johnny boss. So he looks at the woman that works there and says, my mom was Mount Laurel festival queen. And she said, what year? And he said it. And she said the woman's name from like the sixties, like just from bam, like to have that (laughs) level of knowledge of festival queens is unbelievable. The Mount Laurel Festival, the 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 Queen's Coronation, as they call it, is the most like debutante yeah. thing that still happens, maybe anywhere. I don't know. Like it's, it feels like it's still like Civil War time, but yeah, but just like, and you know, they all curtsy and do all that stuff. It's a bizarre. And the weird thing is, we get one person, one woman from every college in Kentucky to come. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes I feel like they feel like they're in a death sentence. By the way, you're talking to someone who's on the Mount Laurel Festival board. <laughs> <laughs> are you, are you, did you, are you the criminal behind the new Mount Laurel Cove 
fucking festival they're trying to put on their music festival. No, I, I give them credit for that. They're trying. It got canceled at all. But the Mount Laurel Festival asked me to be on the committee. And so far, the only thing I can tell that being on the committee entails is sending a check for $400 every year. I haven't been to <laughs> I haven't been to a meeting. I haven't gotten any benefits. I just send a check and then they're like, welcome to the festival board. I haven't even been to the festival in 20 years and somehow I'm still on the board. Wow. All right. Sorry, Tom. Oh, no, you're fine. This is this is uh, this is good. For all your listeners in Brooklyn, this is what they want. They want local small town festival. (laughs) They want they want the local flavor. Well, here. Come into when times allow. If there's ever another Mountain Laurel Festival, we don't know. Who knows? If there's ever another Mountain Laurel Festival, you can come to Pineville, Kentucky, and eat at the Floco and the and Angles. And then for the parade, I suggest you go up to Chain Rock and sit on Chain Rock and listen to the parade. Watch the parade from Chain Rock. It is incredible. For people listening who don't know what Chain Rock is, it is a rock. That that legend says is hooked up to a chain so it won't fall down and crush the city of Pineville. Yeah, it, it is really hooked to a chain. That's true. But is the that, legend that is, it's being held back from crushing the tail. <laughs> is that the one that's like right there by the state park entrance? Yeah. You can like, see it from the road. And it's not even, the funny thing is, it's not even that big a rock. Like they act like, like they act <laughs> like it's some massive. Like it's not even that big a rock. I feel like if it fell, maybe it would hit one house. Maybe. (laughs) But they felt the need to put a chain up and say, and it's now a tourist attraction. My co-host Ryan Lemon thinks it's the funniest thing in the world that there's a chain rock. You also need to say every year they bring in a band and it's always like a country band from about 25 years ago. So it's Uh like Confederate or Sammy Yeah, sometimes it's good. I saw Reba. We had Reba one year. We had Reba. Yeah. Sometimes they have the music. If it's a really big act, they'll do it over at LMU. They'll do it in Tennessee well, to get the big. Do. Yeah. You but know, I saw Ball. Got to go through the tunnel to Farragut. David Ball. Yeah, yeah David Ball. <laughs> what followed me home? I thought I was alone. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him at the high school. Um. But yeah, it's a great hike out to uh, Chain Rock, and you the way the acoustics work is the high school bands that play in the parade, the sound of that, by the time it makes it up to Chain Rock, is incredible. It's just like a crazy Rattle experience. Rattle rock, and thank goodness we have that chain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, and I promise you we can get to Mitch Please the book, but I just, <laughs> at LMU, which is, you know, the college across the mountain. At LMU, I went to the grand opening of the LMU gym, and they brought a what at the time was a huge musical act. Does anybody know who played the grand opening of the LMU gym? Well, if you guess CNC Music Factory, you are correct. Really? And I went. They made me sweat till I bled. Oh my uh, god! CNC Music Factory, and it was like at the height of their thing, like things that like make everybody you go, dance now, and all that was not like, everybody. Like, like they were big. It's not like they did. This was like ninety five, ninety four, when they were still like a oh, thing. Yeah. And uh, CNC Music Factory with Finesse Williams and whoever they got lip syncing for the for the woman that was at uh, LMU. 
Yeah, I, I saw my first concert at LMU. I was about eight years old, and mom took me, my mom and my aunt took me and my cousin to see Aaron Tippin oh, open, open for my namesake, Tanya Tucker. Oh. It was an incredible show. Yeah, first of all, Tanya. I mean, don't we go with Tanya, or is that not? Well, I'm Tanya, so I say Tanya. My mom thought she was Tanya Tucker and named me Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A, oh, after mom her. This named you for Tanya Tucker? <laughs> yes. Now, that's, that's great. I love it. My mom <laughs> thought her name was Tanya. My grandma, when I was a kid, did not like Tanya Tucker. She just kept saying she was a little floozy. And she every- was- <laughs> And every time she came on the radio, my grandma would turn it off and say, we are not listening to that floozy. Even though at the time, Tanya Tucker was like 45. She still didn't <laughs> like it. She, she walked so that Britney Spears could run in a That's midriff. Right. That's a <laughs> she invented the fucking midriff. <laughs> I mean, she was like 16 years old doing songs about cheating on people's husbands. Like, I mean, yeah. like she was, she was, she was ballsy, but. Yeah, she was like 13 when she did Delta Dawn. That's wild. No, Delta Dawn is like a song of a woman that's like been through. Yeah, like 90. And (laughs) she's 41, but her daddy still calls her baby. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I lifted weights once with Aaron Tippin, by the way. What? It was like the only time I ever lifted weights in my life. But he he came to Middlesbrough. I think it was probably, well, it may have been for that concert. He came to Middlesbrough High School to use our gym. And uh, they asked, and I ended up spotting him. And he was a big dude, like a big, but uh, there's all your country music needs. We can move on to other things. Well, this is, if case you are wondering, this was, this was not off the cuff. This was uh, a dramatic reading of the Bell County section of Matt's new book. (laughs) Uh, It was about two things. Showing the damage Mitch McConnell's done and an enlightening view of 90s country music. That's exactly that's exactly perfect. Right. <laughs> so let's 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 start there. Then I I was going to kick it off with a couple of uh, sports related things that I wanted to talk to you about, but we'll circle back to that. So you just put this book out, Mitch. Please, that you said, like as you just said, that was to do two things. Uh, one of them serious, one of them in jest. Uh, but basically, the last time we talked, you and. Um, and uh, who was it? Uh, Chris Tomlin and 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 uh, what's your intern's name again? I forgot. Well, his name was Eli. But I mean, Eli. let's be real. I was there when CNN was filming you all. Like you all acted like you were some little low budget podcast. Hey, Matt, will you come on the show? Sure. And then, like two days before, you're like, "Is it okay if CNN films it?" Like, <laughs> I mean, like hang on just a second. You know, is it okay if CNN films it? So that was when I realized I was going on a show that actually had reach, unlike a lot of the podcasts that I've been on. Well, well, you know, we've we've kicked outside our our coverage uh, with coverage. So, uh, you know, and and thanks to uh, people like you want to come full with us. We've uh, we've done we've done okay. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about uh, well, one Mitch, please, but in particular, like um, you know, like. Like why why this book why now? Well, I know, were there any other working titles? Well, okay, that's a good story. So Simon <laughs> Schuster, so Maybe Simon Schuster, the the book company in June, I get this email from this dude, and he's like, "I'm the CEO of Simon and Schuster, and have you ever thought about writing a book? Um, and how about we write a book about Mitch McConnell?" 
And I was like, why are you right? Like, that's crazy just to get that email, you know, out of nowhere. I assumed it was like a Nigerian spam something. But I forwarded it to my sports agent. And like within five minutes, he's calling me and he's like, dude, that's Jonathan Carp. He's like the biggest dude in publishing. You got to go meet with him. So I went and met with him. And long story short, he wanted to do a book about Mitch McConnell. And he was like, look, we need somebody in Kentucky to put their name on it. So we'll write it. You just put your name on it. You get it. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I was like, (laughs) I'm not, not, if I'm going to do a book, I'm going to do it. And I was like, the book you want to do is going to suck. So let me do the book I want to do. First of all, you want to know what he wanted to name the book? And again, I love Jonathan Carp. He's awesome. And I would have never gotten a chance to write it. So uh, this is not a put down of him. But he wanted to name the book Senate Mutant Ninja Turtle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hey. I was like, respect, man, but I'd probably, I'd probably stick that one back in the oven for a little while. I was like, look, man, I am not putting my name on a book called Senate Mutant Ninja Turtle. And um, so he was like, well, you got to come up with something else. And I came and Chris actually came up with Mitch, please. And we went with it. And the idea of it was, in my opinion, I mean, people all over the country hate Mitch McConnell. But the reason but when they want to defeat him like they do this fall, the reason people around the country hate him is, in my opinion, not the reason people in Kentucky hate him. And the problem is, as they try to make it to where he gets defeated, they use the reasons they dislike him to attack him. And it doesn't work on Kentuckians because Kentuckians dislike him for a different reason. Like the Merrick Garland and all that stuff, that doesn't work on Kentuckians. They don't care about that, in my opinion. I think they don't like Mitch McConnell because they believe he's been in power for 36 years and he hadn't done anything for people in Kentucky. So I wanted to tell that story and I decided to do it county by county. And the theory of it was I want to give a roadmap to the nation to understand how you get Mitch McConnell out of office. It's not what you think it is. You got to go and talk to these people in Kentucky. And you folks know this. I mean, you know, People in eastern Kentucky in the mountains are big Trump supporters, but they don't like Mitch McConnell. And why, you need to understand if you want to beat him. And then I also thought it'd be a chance to be funny and do goofy stuff. And so the book is like, it's a part a takedown of McConnell. It's a part kind of a tour of the state. And then it's a part me telling the story about me considering running for Senate and all the junk I went through dealing with Chuck Schumer, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, so we kind of got into that a little bit last time. Like, one thing that I think is cool about what you did here, this project, is like, it's like almost like a little county by county sort of um, profiles of like the different places. And, the, and also, not only like how Mitch has wronged them, but also to like what makes the all these places unique. Like, I know when you're doing Letcher County, you stop by Apple Shop and all that kind of stuff. What were a couple of counties that you visited that maybe you didn't know a whole lot about that like it was like, oh, okay, this place is kind of cool? Well, I didn't know much about the western part of the state really at all. I mean, I'd spent a lot of time in the mountains. I knew most of those counties. I knew central Kentucky and Louisville. But like once you got from like Bowling Green West, I only knew like Hopkinsville, Madisonville, Paducah. And that was really it. Yeah. And when you went to a lot of those places, I think the thing that I learned is – Kentucky has basically four or five states in one state. I mean, we got where we're from. Okay, that's Appalachia. That's its own thing. You got Central Kentucky, which is its own thing. Northern Kentucky is basically the suburbs. And then Louisville is a city. 
And then Western Kentucky is kind of like the Midwest. Like, I, I guess I always kind of thought it was like here, but it's not. It's it's sort of like Kansas or Nebraska. And so going to all those places, the common denominator of all those places, they've all kind of been screwed by Mitch McConnell, but for very different ways, for very different reasons. I mean, some of them for one thing, some of them the other. And I wanted to tell that story. And I also wanted to showcase, you know, in each county, like there's 120 counties. We have too many counties. Yeah, but, right. in each, but in each county, there is a unique story. And and I wanted to write it so that people in Kentucky felt like their voice was heard. You know, I've talked with you all about Hillbilly Elegy before and how many people have read that and think, okay, well, now I know about Kentucky. I don't need to know anything else about it. And I think that's incorrect. Um, and I wanted to show, hey, here's what Kentucky is actually like. And so for people who want to know, this is how you learn. And, you know, the New York Times reviewed it and they were like, this book would have been awesome if it was a little shorter. Well, I can't make Kentucky have any fewer counties. <laughs> right, right. You know? So, uh, but I, 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 it was a great trip. And I hope, I think when people read it, it's a good enough balance of politics and humor that I think people can really get something out of it if they if they if they start it. Well, let me ask you this, Matt. What are some of like we talked about? Like obviously, like you like you were saying, Kentucky's basically five different states in one, and like there's like you know subtle cultural and sometimes not so subtle cultural differences. But in terms of like why people dislike Mitch McConnell, like is there did you see like particular reasons why people in Barron County and Hardin County might dislike him versus people in Bell County or Letcher County. Well, I think the com- the most common denominator is he's never really been a representative of Kentucky. He's a representative of the wealthy. I mean, that's what Mitch McConnell is. Mitch McConnell, you know, there are senators out there that I disagree with vehemently, but they represent their state. Mitch McConnell, he stands up for what billionaires think, period. That's all he cares about. And, and I think you could showcase that. So take the western part of the state. That's tobacco country. And the tobacco farms basically went away in this state and got nothing from the end of tobacco production in America. And it was all because of Mitch McConnell, all because of Mitch McConnell. And I didn't know that really until I started researching it. I mean, the history of tobacco in Kentucky was basically a fight between Wendell Ford, who was pro-tobacco farmers, and Mitch McConnell, who wasn't. And Mitch McConnell lasted longer and won. And that's why tobacco farmers kind of got screwed. Similarly, coal miners in eastern Kentucky. I mean, I don't have to tell you, there are a million examples of how Mitch has screwed over coal miners in an infinite amount of ways. And then I think this is important too. Religious conservatives, which there are a lot of in this state, especially in the southern parts like Barron County, like you mentioned, they really haven't gotten anything from Mitch Mitch McConnell either. I mean, what's the most important issue to them? Roe versus Wade. Guess what? Has it been overturned? No. Is it ever going to be overturned? I would argue no, because Mitch McConnell no. doesn't want it to be overturned. Well, they he have wants- to keep that football, right? Exactly, because the day it gets overturned, all of a sudden women in these swing states are going to say, you know what, I'm not a Republican. I'm not going to vote Republican. So Mitch knows that. He wants to use it as a rallying cry, but never overturn it. And I think he's been very successful at that. So I would argue whatever your reason for electing Mitch McConnell is, you've never gotten what you wanted. 
So let me ask you this. So like, you know, a, a common refrain we always hear, for, particularly from people not from Kentucky, is so how does this guy keep winning? You know, how does like how does he keep finding the votes, whatever, whatever? And what's what would you say to that person that? Because the Democrat, in, in some ways, the Democrats are worse. Um, and I don't mean worse as a in terms of policy. I just mean worse at politics. Mitch is great at politics. I mean, I give him credit for that. He is a political master. But Democrats, yeah, are, Democrats are terrible at it in Kentucky. Truly, we, we nominate the worst candidates. See, and you and I had this conversation last time I was on. I think we too often focus on moderate versus progressive or whatever. I'm probably more moderate than you all. But I will say this. I think where we missed it is mainstream versus not mainstream. And we, America is in a moment where we don't like mainstream politicians. We just don't. And yet in Kentucky, we pick the most mainstream politicians we possibly can to run. And it makes no sense. The only thing a Kentucky voter likes less than a mainstream Republican is a mainstream Democrat. Yeah, so totally. Why, so why don't we do outsider candidates? And so that, I think, is where we make the mistake. So a perfect example is this race. I'm of the belief that myself and Rocky Adkins would have been had a shot to win. The National Party didn't really consider either one of us. Rocky's a lot more conservative than I am, but I think we're both seen as kind of outside the fray, even though he was a mainstream politician. But well, let me ask Charles, you this. Look at Charles let me ask you this. Charles Booker and Mike Breuer, in my opinion, both of those men would have a better chance of beating Mitch McConnell than Amy McGrath. I don't, yeah. I don't think either of them would beat him, but I think they'd have a better shot. And yet the party is not even going to consider them or give them a chance. I just think it shows how clueless national Democrats are when they talk about Kentucky. Yeah. Well, you told you you told us a good anecdote the last time you were on the show about when you went to the training and everything. And, and their big takeaway was like, raise as much money as you can, raise as much money as you can. And you talked a little bit about how you were kind of disillusioned by that. And I was just wondering if like I didn't mean to cut you off there, but if, you know, the National Party, over, like you were saying, overlooking you and Rocky, do you think that had to do with some sort of residual bad feeling with how you no, were coming I, out I of that or? I, I don't think they knew enough about me to, to to know that. I think what happened is, well, first of all, have I been on with you since I went and saw Schumer? Did we talk about that? I don't think so. So I, this is all in the book. And I would say to people listening, if you care about the process in which we pick candidates in this country, if that matters to you, then read this book. Because I think I talk in detail about the process that the Democratic Party uses to pick candidates more than anyone else that I've seen has done because I went through it. And I'm going to give you the very basic notion. I tried for a year and a half to get Chuck Schumer to meet with me because everybody said, unless Chuck Schumer's on your side, you can't get forget about nominated. it. So I tried for a year and a half. I called his office. I had people call his office. He would never meet with me. In fact, at one point his office called me and said, quit calling. We're not meeting with you. So yeah, that's what they said. So I thought, it, I thought it was over. Then there's a group of very progressive sort of activists who took an interest in my candidacy, I think because they knew McGrath couldn't win. And they got me an interview with like 12 big time donors. So there's a group of 50 donors 
who meet every year that are Obama's biggest donors. And they basically, all the candidates have to do a parade in front of them. They call themselves like <laughs> the Captain's Club. I'm being serious. This, oh event, this event happens in D.C. And the only people that are allowed to go are the Senate and House candidates that the D, the Democratic Party, National Democratic Party approves. So it, you were a Mountain Laurel Festival queen for a day. That's well, but no, I wasn't approved. But what these people did, these activists, is they kind of got the 10 or 12 that they had an in on. And in the same building they were having the official one, they had me speak to them on the side. And long story short, I give this, <laughs> I give this spiel to them about why I'm, I would be the right candidate. And when it was over, the guy, one of them looks at me and goes, Matt, Schumer knows we're here. And he told us we could only come if we talked you out of running. And then he said, but you know what? Listening to you, you'd be better. So we're going to tell him we disagree. Now, I want you to think about this. For a year and a half, I tried to get a meeting with him. Couldn't get one. I walk out that meeting. I laugh and go, well, he's not going to meet with me. He hasn't. Ten minutes later, I get in the cab, check my email, and I already have an email from Schumer asking me to come meet with him. What? <laughs> I'm being serious. For a year and a half. Motivated by the big donors, these guys. That was, exactly. That was what it took. For a year and a half, I had political consultants. I had people that know him. I had former senators reaching out to him saying, meet with this guy. The only thing he listened to were those 10 donors. So, so I go meet with him. And this is all detailed in the book. But long story short, he gives me the two-hour interview that he gives all potential senator candidates. And it is... Just you want to read it. It's like it, like every senator, Democratic nominee goes through this. And at the end of it, he said, all right, Matt, if you enter the race, I'll stay out of it. And I said, honestly, I don't care if you're in it or not, because people in Kentucky, it's better for me if you're not for me. I was like, but the key is you've got to allow me to hire staff because here's what they do. They make it to where if a, if a consultant or a pollster works for a candidate that's not approved by them, Schumer blocks them from ever working for one of his candidates again. Oh, my God. So there which, are is what, which would hamper somebody like Charles oh, Booker or exactly. Mike. That's or what Charles Booker's going through with. So right. there are nine Democratic pollsters in America, nine major ones. I went to all nine. None of them would work with me. None of them. So after I met with Schumer, his sort of grant to me was, I'll stop blocking people from working for you. And when he did that, the next day, my email box was full of people who wanted to work for me. How does that happen that quick? What's wrong? These people are fucking diseased. They are are truly fucking diseased. I don't know. But literally, you wonder, like, I'm like you. I wondered, how did these people even know? Because he he said to me, he was like, Matt, I don't want you to tell anybody about this meeting. I was like, fine. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote a book. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we did in the immediate. But the next day, it was in the Washington Post that I had been there. Nobody in Kentucky caught on to that, but there was like a Matt Jones spotted in Washington. But I guess there's like some secret society of people because then, I mean, literally the next day, my email was full of people who wanted to write, who wanted to work for me. Charles Booker's going through that because Charles didn't get the sign off because he didn't have the rich donors go meet with him. So he can't, I mean, he has a hard time hiring staff. He, He can hire Kentucky staff, but hiring national help, he just, he can't do it. 
I cannot believe the weight they've put behind Amy. She's just a fucking. Well, he, uh, I mean, here's why they have her. I mean, it's not, they believe, and they're right about this. She can raise an obscene amount of money. So their view is, look, there's a 5% chance of beating Mitch McConnell at best. Let's say Matt Jones and Rocky Atkins have a 5% chance. Okay, Amy McGrath may have a 1% chance, but we know she can raise money and keep Mitch busy. We don't know if these dudes can. And that's exactly why they pick her. Uh, What's funny about that is most of the emails we get about this race are from listeners that we have in places like Portland, Oregon, Mm-hmm. Places like Los Angeles, California, different places in Texas, New York, wherever. And they're like, and they screenshot like the mailers that they get from Amy McGrath's camp. They raise money. That's, I mean, they don't, she doesn't raise money in Kentucky. I mean, that she raises money in those, in those people. And I say this with all due respect, because look, don't get me wrong. I hope she wins. She would be better than him. I mean, I hope. I hope Charles or Mike wins the primary, but if she's the nominee, I hope she wins. With that said, to those of you in Portland and LA, you, you're throwing your money away with her. Go give your money to Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, or go give your money to the woman or whoever's running against Joni Ernst in Iowa. You're throwing it away here, and y'all know that's true. They're throwing it away. Give your money to Trillbillies, people. <laughs> Patreon. <laughs> but it's well, just- I mean, I. It's just the reality, Wait, in my opinion. So let me ask you this. So then if if people are throwing their money away on Amy, which is not a point I disagree with, then like what what are the lessons we should learn from this and the prescriptions that you would have personally? I would say the lessons are, first of all, well, let me say this. The Schumer people will go, look, we have a good chance of taking the Senate this year. And if we do, I guess the way we do it is right. And that's that is in some ways hard for me to argue Except I would say there are the Senate is gerrymandered against Democrats. There are more conservative states than there are liberal ones. So if we want to compete in the Senate long term, we got to win states like Kentucky. We have to. Yeah. My thing is, if you want to win in states like that, then let's I'm going to sound like a conservative. Let's have a free market competition. Let these people go at it and let's see who wins. Right. Because then we'll see who's a good candidate and who's not. Amy is not a good candidate. And you know how I know that? We saw it last year when she ran against Andy Barr because she got up in Massachusetts and said, I'm more liberal than anyone in Kentucky. Well, guess what? She lost that day. Yeah. Knowing that, you need to have the competition. So the best person, I mean, look, had I run, maybe I would have screwed up and somebody would have been better than me. But it's not a free competition. They just select the winner, and that doesn't work in a place like Kentucky. Yeah, it's it's so amazing, really, for me to like to pull back the curtain and hear you say this stuff about like it's not only your race you have to win; it's also you have to. It's also mediated through this sort of patronage and clientage to Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and the National Party, and all that kind of stuff. That's the first hurdle. I had someone tell me this, and I think they're correct. The last time, now, now the Senate, by the way, the National Democrat and Republican Party, they don't get involved in every Senate race. Sometimes they say like, you know what, it's California, we're going to win no matter what, so y'all have at it. Whoever wins, wins. Right. But the last time they were involved with a candidate that didn't get the primary nomination, you want to know when it was? When was that? 2010, 
Rand Paul over Trey Grayson. And that and that's a perfect example of Kentucky's the kind of state that doesn't want you to tell us who to pick. Now, I love Trey Grayson. I think he's a really good man. But Rand Paul, that was a time that the Tea Party was going. Yeah. That's how he won. And my point is, we're in one of those moments now with the Democratic Party. You guys are an example of this. You guys are popular and successful. Of all the times not to allow the mainstream to pick it, it would be now. And yet we still yeah. do it. Yeah, it's like the Republicans at least like learned. They're like read the tea leaves on that what was happening at the time with Rand Paul and were successful. In, yeah. Well, in 2018, in the Indiana Senate race, the Republican nominee, the Republican Party decided, let's just stay out of it. There's five nominees. We think we'll be the favorite no matter what. And Mike Braun won because Mike Braun was the biggest trumper of all of them. Well, guess what? In that moment, that was what worked. But we don't do that. We just pick them and say, well, y'all have this candidate and like it. Well, Matt, you've laid out all the evidence we need and we already had enough. But so do you have any thoughts on how we abolish the Senate altogether? (laughs) Well, I don't know how we do that. That's that's probably going to be a there's a constitutional problem there, unfortunately. uh, (laughs) Well, we're living in a constitutional crisis times anyway, Matt. So let's put the lawyer cap on for a second. Here's what what I think needs to happen in the short term. Okay, we need to take the Senate because if we don't, the the amount of judges that Trump will put on the court that second term is going to be staggering. And I just have a big belief that people don't realize how important the judiciary is. And I'll give you one example. There was a case in the 60s called Rodriguez v. Texas. And it was the, the question was constitutionally, should do you have a constitutional right to a good education? Not just an education, but a good one. And it said, should the government fund each school district equally so that poor school districts can get the same education rich ones do. The Supreme Court decided 5-4 no. What if they had decided 5-4 yes? What if every school district in Kentucky had to be funded per student the same as the ones in the rich in Oldham County? Think about how different this country would be. And it was 5-4. Could have gone the other way. Those decisions happen every day and we don't realize it and we cannot let the Supreme Court go 7-2 or I don't care if you if you get somebody that's more progressive than Bernie, it won't matter. The Supreme Court will strike down everything they do. We well, let me ask you this, Matt. Let me ask you this. So we know that, you know, in the era of Trump that he and McConnell have sort of padded out the judiciary, not just the Supreme Court, but also just oh, circuit yeah. courts and different things. Like, how do we start to undo some of the damage from that, in your opinion? Some of it's hard to undo. I mean, some of it, like, those people are going to be in office forever. I mean, I think the only way you do it is, I know this sounds bad, you have to win these elections. Because there was a belief I think Democrats had that Susan Collins and a couple of these other people would serve as barriers from getting the crazy judges. Because during the Bush years, that kind of happened. There were some moderate Republicans that kept Bush from appointing wacky people. Well, guess what? Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. That doesn't and exist some, anymore. And yeah. some of these people Trump is appoint, appointing, not all of them, but some of them are crazy. And they're getting all, I mean, read about Judge Ho down on the uh, Fifth Circuit, down there where Texas is. He writes insane opinions. 
<laughs> like like what, craven, what for example craven maniac well I mean, no they had a on bonk case the other day that was about something and i can't remember what it was and it was like 14 to 1 and the one was judge ho and he was basically like yeah i don't think the civil rights amendment is correct and you're like excuse me like like he was basically saying the civil like the all the civil rights bills in, in 1960s were all unconstitutional now imagine if you end up with when it's not <laughs> one of those people. I mean, it used to be that Clarence Thomas was the only dude who would write stuff like that. Well, now, you know, now Alito starts to agree with him some and Gorsuch starts to agree with him some. And all of a sudden you went from one crazy person. So bring out the worst in one another. Exactly. You went from one crazy person to three. So it worries me. I, I, I This is because I'm an attorney. I am genuinely worried about the courts. So, again, you've laid out an incredible abundance of evidence here. So next question, how do we abolish the judicial arm? Yeah, I don't, again, I think you have a constitutional problem. Um, well, let me let me pivot to something else uh, real quick since, you know, we're in this, you know, we're not in the same room like we have been in the past and all that kind of stuff. We've talked a little bit about like how, sort of our character as a country has sort of been just rattled by all this coronavirus and everything else. And and it's like, like the few things that are like sort of central to the American identity sports being chief among them for our purposes here. How are you dealing with, uh, with uh, your beat being disrupted a little bit? Man? Well, it's good, it's good for me on the radio. Cause I can talk about things I'm interested in rather than sports, you know, because I mean, after a while, how, what else can you say about sports? It's like balls going in a basket, right. you know? Um, right. Right. But uh, I do think though, I think you hit on something that is really true, which is I think for people, probably my age and younger, maybe even like 45, 50 and younger. There's an uneasiness that is in this country that has not been there in our lifetime. You know, I think people older than us had that during the civil rights movement and protest. They wondered, is the country just falling apart? Obviously people who were in world war two did that in Vietnam. But I think for our, for our generation, the sort of uneasiness about what is this world going to look like? next month. I don't really think we've felt that. And I think that's been weird to people. It's been weird to me. I mean, when you, I genuinely don't know what August is going to look like. Are we going to be close to normal? Are we going to still be locked down? Like are all schools going to be closed? And if we're closing schools for another semester, like what happens? Like, it's just, it's such a, all of this is such a fundamental question is to who we are. And I think our generation and younger has never felt that uneasiness. We've always had a world where like it all made sense on some level and it doesn't, there was really always this invisible hand that was going to ride everything. That yeah, yeah, exactly. Like was, yeah. I've felt this way a lot during the Trump era in general. Like it feels like I used to always say, well, it'll never get this bad. And then it has. And like that sort of throws off your whole equilibrium when that happens. You know, I used to say, and I think this, this cry, this coronavirus has just made me go, well, I don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. Yeah. No, Which is, by the way, how humans insane. live for thousands of years and we just <laughs> just, just live perpetually with that. Yeah, it's, 
it's weird. It's weird because I was thinking about this. It's like there are kids in high school. There's kids in college. And, and I mean, for me, like high school is kind of a trivial time. But like for some people, that's sort of a formative thing. And like, could you imagine just like saying, oh, yeah, I went to high school essentially for like two and a half years, like assuming this goes on. You know what I mean? Like they're they're like high school or college career could just be cut. That experience could just be cut short, like in terms of actually physically showing up somewhere. It's kind of weird to think about. Well, you know, I think uh, take the mountains of Eastern Kentucky. I mean, honestly, if you go back to our grandparents age, like life was awful in terms of difficult. I don't mean like it was the terrible life, but it was difficult. It was hard to find work. The work you found could kill you. And that was, (laughs) and that was an expected part of life that life was, you know, to quote uh, the philosopher, nasty, brutish, and short, that was kind of how it was there. And then sometime around the seventies or so, I mean, don't get me wrong, life's still hard, but there became an expectation that we were a lot more like the rest of the world and that we had electricity and running water and all of that stuff. Well, now we're all kind of like, well, what happens if I can't get food? Like what happens if I can't go outside for long periods of time? And those are questions, honestly, that I think I never even thought about. And that I think is the thing that's disorienting to people, at least to me. Never. You just never had to confront. Well, to put a bow on it, Matt, here, and we'll cut you loose since we kind of got off to a late start anyway. But I I wanted to ask you about, because I've been taking a little heat because I I decided to dip my toe in your beef with the Wake Forest. Uh, yeah. What, whoever the Wake Forest dude was, Josh, whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. So some, something I said on Twitter, and I, I love getting at basketball debates because, look, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know about me. I, I was a video coordinator at Moorhead when we beat Louisville in the NCAA tournament. Like, I've watched more basketball than most people – have by factory. Were you game. at that game? Like, that game? Were you at that game? That was in Denver, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, out in Denver. Yeah. yeah. yeah and for Reed blocked the shot there. Yeah. So uh so like you know I like to throw out these little hot takes every once in a while and I'm accused of being a UK homer or whatever. But so the guy had said the thing to you. Uh so name two UK players better than Tim Duncan or Chris Paul, which is of course an apples and oranges thing because all of Cal's guys that could be up you know, get up in that conversation, their Maybe careers aren't over. You know what I mean? So, and I said to them, I said, is it really inconceivable that we could talk about Anthony Davis or Carl Anthony Towns the way we talk about Tim Duncan by the time it's all said and done? And I don't think that's like a hot take in the least. And so everybody was bombarding me, like bagging on Carl Towns. Like, oh, I, I see Anthony Davis because he's like this freakish rim protector guy, once in a lifetime player. The way he's been talked up. But I was like, you look at Carl Towns' numbers, and granted, he didn't have the luxury of being drafted to David Robinson's team. And he's only 22. Numbers of Tim, he's only 22 years exactly. old. I mean, Car- I mean, Tim yeah. Duncan went four years of college, and then he went to the pro. Yeah. I mean, Carl Towns came right out of high school. Um, yeah, listen, I, I don't care what Wake Forest people say about basketball. What do they know? There's nothing that gets is more in my wheelhouse than taking on people who say bad things about Kentucky. It's more important to me than like conservative, liberal. You know, many years ago in 2010, Kentucky played Cornell in the NCAA tournament. You all may have some listeners who went to Cornell. 
I can't stand Cornell because in the lead up to that game, there was a big narrative nationwide. Cornell is how college basketball should be. Kentucky's a bunch of one and done thugs is basically what they would say. And at the core of that was Kentucky's black and Cornell's white. That was what was was at the core of it. And I wrote a post that was read on radio shows all over the country where I was basically like, y'all are being racist. And, and, and don't act like you're not being racist because you're liberal and thus you take up for Cornell because they're an Ivy League school and that's where you went. You're still being racist. DeMarcus Cousins and Eric Bledsoe, that's the American dream. You know, with you go to Cornell, what is that? Like, you know, and um, and I love DeMarcus, of course, gave that famous quote, this ain't no spelling bee, which I thought was an absolute yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. But – the same thing with Wake Forest. I mean, that what that coach said about why would you want a degree from Kentucky when you could have a degree from Wake Forest? I mean, Olivier Sar is from France. When he goes back to France, they don't know anything about Wake Forest. Like they like they, like they don't. <laughs> you think people in France are impressed by Wake Forest? They don't even know what that is. Like, tell me the French yeah. French university equivalent of Wake Forest. How many universities can you name in in France? None. So yeah. I, I really like going up against liberal and I mean, you, you've heard me rain on conservatives for 45 minutes. So let me go against liberal liberal elitism drives me absolutely crazy. And that Josh Graham's sort of rant there was my latest chance to go up against liberal elitists. And there's a lot of that in that Mitch please book too. There's a lot of, you know, liberal elitists think they're smarter than everybody. And that's one of the things I like about you all. You guys maintain true to what Eastern Kentucky is. And that is something that most progressives have a really hard time doing. And especially on the national scale. I mean, at the end of the day, the biggest problem Democrats have in Kentucky is most Kentuckians think that Democrats believe they're better than they are. They think that those national Democrats, oh, you're better than me. And you know what? They're right. The national Democrats do think they're better than they are. They do think we're a bunch of dumb hillbillies. I mean, they think I'm a dumb hillbilly and I finished second in my class at Duke and that's fine. They think I'm an ignorant dude because I sound like this. You know, I hate that. And that's why we struggle in this state. It's almost more cultural than it is political. Yeah. Yeah, I somehow went. Man, thank you so much, ball to uh, liberal elitism, but but there, I I think there was a path. Oh, that I mean, uh, the funny thing about that is, it's like, yeah, I, I understand Wake Forest is a good school, but like, I mean, it's not like you know Duke or Vanderbilt or you know what I mean, like in terms of reputation, it's good. It's not not where like, I went to college, I went to Transylvania, and Transylvania is a good school, but sometimes when people when I was at Transylvania, they talked like we were at Yale. I was like, you know, stop it. It's still Transylvania. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, it's not like we all turned down full rides to Oxford in England to come here to Transylvania and walk across Broadway <laughs> and get hit by a car. I mean, I love Transylvania, but come on. I kind of feel that way about Wake Forest as well. Right, right. I start well, I won't, I won't drag us into it, but if we had time, I was going to ask you to explain to me what in the fuck's going on with Louisville. But, <laughs> on everything, just in life. Yeah, yeah. just in general. But I, I'll get Tom to explain it to me later. Well, let me say, I hope your listeners will get Mitch, please. It was weird to release a book 
when bookstores are closed. It came out, the book literally came out right as America shut down, um, which is not ideal, but um, but it's available from your local bookstore or whatever the hell you want to do. And hopefully when bookstores open again, they'll still have a copy. We'll see. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt, thanks so much for stopping by. You want to tell folks where they can find you if they're not familiar with you? Uh, Twitter and at KY Sports Radio, or I have two accounts. My political one is at Matt Jones Radio. If you want to know what the rest of the world thinks, just wait till I do a political post and read the comments, and then you'll get to see. Uh, I get I, it, you get a quite a cross section of uh, Kentucky. Hell yeah! Well, Matt, thanks so much for stopping by, man. We always appreciate it and uh, have fun with you. But, and, uh, uh, good luck with everything and. Let me know when you're when uh, you guys are ever up this way. I'd love to do a, uh, at some point. I'm gonna have you on my podcast if I ever start it back, which I know which may well, it be, would be a dream. Would be a dream, my friend. We appreciate <laughs> you. And, uh, you stay all. safe, okay? You got get some angles on your way out of town. Oh, I will. Listen, I will. I'm gonna go make sure the rocks chained up. See you. <laughs>